0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Buffalo History Museum podcast. My name is Anthony Greco, and I'm the museum's director of exhibits and interpretive planning. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've put out a new episode, but today's story is one I know that you're going to enjoy. One thing you should know is that when a while passes between episodes, it's because we've likely got a brand new exhibit that's kept us busy, and this time is no exception. On July 13th, we debuted our new exhibit titled Haudenosaunee Resurgence, Marie Watt Calling Back, Calling Forward. Running through October 31st of this year, the exhibit features numerous large-scale textiles by renowned Seneca artist Marie Watt along with a team of collaborators, Marie and the Buffalo History Museum, explore the concept of indigenous resurgence and the act of re-establishing indigenous power and presence inside the museum and in our community. So be sure to stop in and see these magnificent works along with some unique site-specific pieces prepared just for this show. And remember, museum admission is pay what you wish. And now on with today's story. The United States was a country founded on the principles of liberty and freedom for all. However, this was only partly true. Perhaps the largest stain on the moral fabric of our republic was the institution of slavery. How could the American experiment truly be realized if the peculiar institution of slavery was so deeply ingrained into the very culture of the United States? Those who spent their lives defending the rights of men to be free, abolitionists as they were called, are now among the most revered figures in history. People like William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and Frederick Douglass faced the evils of slavery head-on, and won. Today, many Americans are, at the very least, somewhat familiar with the aforementioned names, especially the escaped slave-turned-orator Frederick Douglass. In high schools across the nation, his work, the narrative of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, is seen as a crucial firsthand account that brings the horrors of slavery to the forefront of the American consciousness, just as it did in 1845. Douglass was just one of many escaped slaves who turned their attention to abolitionism in the years leading up to the Civil War. Though not as well known, another man, one with local connections, William Wells Brown, followed a very similar trajectory to Douglass, an escaped slave turned author and orator. William Wells Brown was born in 1814, about 30 miles east of Lexington, Kentucky. At birth, his name was simply William, and in his home state, he was considered to be nothing more than property. His father was a white slave owner named George Higgins, and his mother was a multiracial woman who was one of Higgins' slaves. William was given to his master's first cousin, Dr. John Young. Young owned over 40 slaves, and due to his own son already being named William, he referred to Brown by the name of Sanford, a name Brown always detested. In search of more fertile land, Young relocated to Missouri in 1817, where he started a tobacco and hemp farm. Dr. Young was elected to the first Missouri legislature in 1820 and gave his overseer, a man named Grove Cook, virtually free reign over his slaves. Brown can recall his mother being viciously whipped by Cook for arriving minutes late for work one morning. When William was 12 years old, Dr. Young relocated to St. Louis. It was there that young William was rented out for the first time. If a master had no use for one of the slaves on his farm, they would often rent them out as cheap labor. Brown did a stint as a servant with a Major Freeland. On Brown's own words, Freeland was, quote, a drunkard, gambler, and horse racer. Above all, however, he was a vicious slave owner often punishing his slaves through the use of what he called Virginia play. Virginia play involved suspending an enslaved person in the air in a small shed while tobacco was burned at their feet. Masters didn't want to kill their slaves, of course, as they were property. So after the lungs had filled with smoke and their feet had burned to what they felt was an acceptable level, the man or woman would then be cut down. Freeland terrified William, and he soon made the first of many escape attempts. Only 12 years old, he escaped into the woods where he remained for weeks. Now, with no idea of where to go, William was caught and returned to his original owner, John Young. Dr. Young continued to rent out his first cousin once removed—remember, they are related—to other masters between 1817 and 1825. Brown was rented to Captain Culver of the steamship Missouri, where he got his first taste of nautical navigation. He was afterward rented to John Colburn, a local hotel owner. William found Mrs. Colburn to be somewhat agreeable, but her husband was quite the opposite. While working under the ownership of Colburn, he watched with horror as a fellow slave received 50 lashings. His crime? Not polishing the dying silverware to the master's liking. William was then taken to St. Louis, where he was rented yet again, this time to a local printer. His newest temporary master was Elijah Lovejoy, a Presbyterian minister. Brown found Lovejoy to be his most fair master, as Lovejoy taught him the basics of reading and writing. And it was here that Brown first came into contact with abolitionist newspapers, which proved to the young boy that there was more to life than the horrors of slavery. While his situation with Lovejoy was the best Brown would experience while enslaved, the city of St. Louis as a whole was not only one of the most pro-slavery cities in the entire country, but one of the most dangerous cities to live in if you were black. Even if you were a free person of color, St. Louis was a haven for racism and violence. Such was the case with Francis McIntosh. McIntosh's story is one with a tragic ending. Two police officers in St. Louis were attempting to apprehend a criminal. When they asked McIntosh to assist them, he refused. As an African American and thus subject to unfair trials and sentences, the police told him that he was to spend five years in jail for his crime. In that moment of panic, McIntosh attempted to escape custody and in the process killed one of the officers. William wrote about this event in his narrative, describing the tragedy in terrifying detail. A mob of white Missourians took McIntosh to present day downtown St. Louis, and there they burned him at the stake. Witnesses claimed that even after he had died, young white children hurled rocks at McIntosh's charred body, hoping to shatter his skull. William nearly succumbed to the same fate in the Gateway City. His master often sent him to the office of a local newspaper, the Missouri Republican, to pick up print. On one of his trips there, William was assaulted by a group of white boys who proceeded to stone him. In the scuffle, he pushed one of the boys and escaped. Upon his return to the print shop, he told Lovejoy what had happened, and to his surprise... He wasn't punished. Instead, Lovejoy went to retrieve the print himself. And when he returned, he had some bad news for his young print assistant. The father of the boy William had pushed was looking for him. His intention, of course, was to punish him. The man's name was Samuel McKinney, and when he arrived at Lovejoy's print shop to exact his revenge, William slipped out back and escaped. A few days later, however, while out on a walk, he was grabbed by McKinney and repeatedly struck on the head with a wooden cane. Blood poured from William's ears, and he was bedridden for over a month. After this episode, and once he had recovered, William was again rented to a steamship captain, this time to a man named William Walker. During his time on Walker's ship, the Enterprise, William saw firsthand the evils of the slave trade. What's worse, he was forced to take part in it. The enterprise operated primarily as a slave trading ship, traveling down the Mississippi and trafficking humans in cities like New Orleans. On a side note, this is where the term sold down the river comes from. Now, at one point during their journey, William witnessed an enslaved female throw herself overboard and drown herself after her child was taken from her and sold. The Enterprise could carry up to 60 slaves at a time. And when it reached New Orleans, Captain Walker and the crew put their enslaved in cages. Brown was tasked with first cutting and then dyeing the hair of the elder men and women to make them seem younger and more able-bodied. During William's time enslaved by Walker, the captain purchased a young woman named Cynthia, who he forced to be his mistress. During the early to mid 1800s, white on black sexual assault in the American South ran rampant and William witnessed this repulsive behavior firsthand. Walker's depravity reached unconscionable lows when after having two children with Cynthia, he married a white woman and sold his multiracial family into slavery. What William was forced to witness during his time with Captain Walker was not unique. Though the international slave trade was made illegal in 1808, the American domestic slave trade carried on up until the Civil War. William was 18 years old by the time he returned to St. Louis in 1833. When he arrived, Dr. Young informed him that he had sold William's mother and sister and that he was going to find a new master for him in the city. He reminded Young that they were in fact blood relatives, but his pleas fell on deaf ears. William's sister was set to be sold to a slaver based in Natchez, another southern town known for its brutality and slavery-based economy. Before she was sold, he visited her knowing that it would be the last time he would ever see her. He couldn't bear for his mother to experience the same fate, so William devised an escape plan. Along with his mother, he planned to steal a boat and sail up the Mississippi, eventually reaching freedom in Canada. The plan started off without a hitch. The two made their way up to Illinois. There, they landed and hid in the woods for several days. They stopped at a farmhouse where they were given food and directions on how to reach free soil. According to William, three slave catchers appeared out of nowhere and surrounded them. Dr. Young had put a warrant out for their arrest and just like that, William's second escape attempt had come to an end. Later, he recalled the hypocritical Christianity prevalent in the American South. As the slave catchers, men of the lowest order, and working in conjunction with evil, broke out in prayer to celebrate their latest capture. When William and his mother were returned to Dr. Young, they were permitted to see each other one final time before being sold to their new masters. It was at that moment that William's mother confided in him that she would not last long on a plantation and that this was surely the last time the two would ever see each other. She told her son that her fate was sealed and that he didn't need to look after her any longer. Instead, he must escape to the north. William was sold to a young merchant named Samuel Willie, but the arrangement only lasted a few months. In late 1833, he was sold again, this time to a steamship captain named Enoch Price for $700. Brown was purchased by Price and became the family's carriage driver. In an attempt to secure the loyalty of their new investment, Mrs. Price purchased another slave named Eliza, with hopes that the two would marry. This was a common tactic used by slave owners to prevent runaways. They would create forced family ties to dissuade the enslaved from escaping. William saw through the plan, however, and told Price that he was not yet ready to marry. To stay in his master's good graces, however, William promised that he would marry Eliza when the time was right. This was seemingly all the reassurance that Price needed, and six weeks later, he and William were en route to New Orleans on business. Along the way, Price asked if he could trust William not to escape on an upcoming trip to Cincinnati. Now, William knew exactly what to say. He promised his master that he was in love with Eliza and would never leave her behind. Mrs. Price believed that William truly wanted to marry Eliza and on January 1st, 1834, the group headed to Ohio, a free state. On their way to Cincinnati, the Price family stopped in the town of Cairo and William immediately ran into the woods. His plan was to follow the North Star to Canada, where he could begin a new life as a free man. It was January, however, and surviving in the elements was a daunting enough task, let alone traveling. With no coat and no real plan, William hid for a couple days before making his way north, traveling over 20 miles a day. Along the way, he stole corn from a farmhouse and found a barn to take shelter from the falling snow. By the eighth day of his escape, he came to the conclusion that In order to make it, he would have to risk everything and ask someone for help. Frostbitten and hungry, William watched from the woods as travelers passed by, waiting to find one he considered the most approachable. When a lone man in a large coat passed by, William decided that this may be his best chance. He hailed the stranger who, in turn, let him know he was in a staunchly pro-slavery area of Ohio. The man advised William to remain hidden and that he would return with a carriage for him in a few hours. This was undoubtedly one of the most nerve-wracking episodes of Brown's life. Could he trust a stranger to shepherd him to freedom? Or was this just another slave catcher looking to collect a reward? William decided not to flee, and was greatly relieved when the stranger returned. Luckily, the man was a Quaker, a religious society among the first to protest slavery. He escorted William to his farmhouse, where he allowed him to stay at his home. There, William would spend the next 15 days recovering. The Quaker and his wife purchased clothing for their guest and provided him with food and drink. William was shocked that a white woman served him dinner and sat with him at the same shared table. The couple took care of William until he was ready to carry on and provided him with money to use along the way. These two Quakers offered their visitor something more valuable, however a name. The Quaker man that had saved him was named Wells Brown. He imparted onto William not only the knowledge that many whites were against slavery, but his name as well. William was now William Wells Brown. With money in his pocket and a new identity, Brown set off for Cleveland. His plan was to make his way across the Great Lakes and into freedom. Brown was now closer than ever to escaping bondage. The journey to Cleveland was just a short few days. Stopping at another farmhouse to hopefully find the owners agreeable, he was turned away by the husband his wife then came to the door and berated her husband until he welcomed the traveler in. When Brown reflected on the incident years later, he claimed that, quote, "'Ever since the incident, "'I have been in favor of women's rights.'" When he arrived in Cleveland, Brown was dismayed. Lake Erie was frozen, and he wasn't able to make his way across in such conditions. Regardless, Cleveland was a free city and Brown experienced life for the first time outside the confines of slavery. He met a young woman of color named Elizabeth Schooner, and the two married in 1834, after only a short time together. Schooner was literate, and along with many other members of the African-American community there, taught Brown many of the basics of reading and writing. Taking this newfound knowledge, he regularly read newspapers like Genius of Universal Emancipation, an abolitionist newspaper that convinced Brown he needed to do more for those still enslaved. In 1836, Brown relocated to another Great Lake City, Buffalo, New York. Slavery in New York state had been abolished in 1827, and cities like Buffalo and Rochester had become centers of the abolitionist movement. Around this time, Buffalo had a population of about 15,000 people—three times that of Cleveland—and was a thriving urban center. Brown settled in the city at 13 Pine Street, and once again found work aboard a steamship. While working on the ship, he joined the Western New York Anti-Slavery Society and regularly smuggled slaves across the water to Canada. Now, while the exact number of slaves he helped to freedom is unknown, Brown recorded escorting 69 people across the border during just one seven-month period. When not aboard the steamship, Brown and other local abolitionists would often meet at Niagara Falls. There they'd wait for visiting southern slaveholders to stray a bit too far from their enslaved. Brown and the others would then informed them that they could escape because according to New York state law, slavery was illegal. His hope was that the slaves now privy to this fact would finally find freedom much the way he did in Ohio. Outside of actively helping escapees find their freedom, Brown started speaking at anti-slavery conventions across Western New York. He often used music to accompany his passionate attacks on the peculiar institution This style of oratory made him famous. He also began to write for abolitionist newspapers. His works were met with broad acclaim and in 1843 when Buffalo was chosen to host a National Convention of Colored Citizens, Brown was invited to attend. The convention was organized by distinguished members of New York's anti-slavery community, men like Reverend Henry Moxley and Charles L. Reason, the first black professor at an all-white college. Among the attendees were some of the nation's most notable abolitionists. It was at this convention that William Wells Brown first met Frederick Douglass. Although Brown was experiencing success in his fight for human rights in the 1840s, things were not always easy. Even in an area as far north as western New York, he still experienced discrimination and racism during his time in Buffalo. He was turned away from a hotel in Attica for being black and was pelted with food while trying to give a lecture in East Aurora. Outside of his work with the anti-slavery cause, Brown was also an advocate of temperance, speaking out against the ills that alcohol caused in society. He even formed his own temperate society in Buffalo, the first of its kind in the Queen City. At its peak, his society had about 500 members. In total, Brown spent 11 years in Buffalo, and during that time, he transformed himself into one of the nation's finest orators, writers, and anti-slavery minds. By 1847, a well-known abolitionist and social reformer, William Lloyd Garrison, had taken note of Brown's fiery rhetoric and writings. He invited Brown to Boston to become a member of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, founded by Garrison himself more than a decade earlier. His decision to work closely with the white-led Massachusetts Society led to a fissure in his relationship with noted social reformer Frederick Douglass. By 1847, Douglass had broken with William Lloyd Garrison, believing that the Constitution was not a pro-slavery document, and that only through the political process could Blacks achieve equal rights. The two had worked together in the past, but this split saw the two orators go from friends to rivals. Both wanted universal emancipation, but disagreed on the methods to get there, much like W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. That year, in 1847, Brown published his work, William Wells Brown, A Fugitive Slave. This autobiography detailed his time as an enslaved person and how he escaped to freedom, sparing none of the gruesome or terrifying details. The work was an immediate success, and several editions were released in both the U.S. and Europe. Interestingly enough, William Wells Brown, A Fugitive Slave was a bestseller, second only to Frederick Douglass's memoir penned just two years prior in 1845. William Wells Brown understood the importance of garnering support from the anti-slavery cause in Europe. Britain, for example, had abolished slavery in 1807, and public sentiment there was notably anti-slavery. In 1849, he traveled there with his two daughters to lecture across England. Now, what was supposed to be just a few month long tour turned into five years. While away, the US Congress passed the Compromise of 1850. Included among the omnibus bill's stipulations was significantly tighter enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act. Authored by Henry Clay as a bridge document between the North and the South, Buffalo's own, President Millard Fillmore, signed off on the bill in September of 1850. A stricter adherence to the Fugitive Slave Act meant that even if a slave escaped to free territory because they were considered property, they would be returned to their masters through the use of slave catchers. Brown deemed the risk of him being recaptured upon return too great, choosing instead to remain overseas. During his stay in England, Brown continued to lecture and promote the anti-slavery cause. In 1853, while in London, he completed what could be considered his magnum opus, a novel titled Clotel. It was the first American novel published by an African American and was based on the true and not-so-secret rumor that former U.S. President Thomas Jefferson had fathered children with his slave-turned-mistress, Sally Hemings. The novel's central characters were the enslaved woman and her two children fathered by the third president, Clotel and Althesa. In the novel, Brown examines topics like interracial relationships and the hardships faced by mixed race couples in America during the 19th century. Although the work is a fictional account of the relationship between Jefferson and Hemings, the novel does not hesitate in its description of the victimization of black women by their white masters. This was truly the first time that an African-American author challenged the hypocrisy of white America on such a grand scale, involving men like Jefferson, a deified founding father, in the pantheon of American democratic heroes. The landmark masterpiece was not originally published in the U.S., but was written for an English audience. Again, Brown knew the importance of having England as an ally in the anti-slavery movement and several editions of Clotel would be printed in the years following 1853 throughout the UK. William Wells Brown had achieved a level of fame that not even he could have predicted. Clotel was an instant success and accomplished its goal in rallying abolitionist sentiment across the Atlantic. In 1854, Brown's freedom was officially purchased by a group of his friends in England. Now, there was no question about it. William Wells Brown was a free man, even in the eyes of the law. He returned to the U.S. to continue his work as the nation's dichotomy was pushing it ever closer to civil war. Brown settled back in Boston and continued to work closely with William Lloyd Garrison and the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. Never allowing his pen to rest, he published the play The Escape in 1858. Not only did Brown have the honor of being the first African-American to have a novel be published, but now he could say he was the first to have a play be published as well. As the Civil War loomed, Brown took the stance that Lincoln could probably not be trusted and viewed the conflict as a white man's war. He didn't believe that freedom was coming for enslaved blacks and instead became a member of the Haitian emigration movement. This movement was in many ways similar to the American Colonization Society, which was founded in 1817. The ACS, as it was known, was headed by political elites like James Monroe, John Randolph, and Henry Clay and backed the forced emigration of slaves back to Africa, specifically Liberia as a way to avert violent racial conflict. While the ACS was led by white Americans, the Haitian emigration movement was a non-forced collective effort by former slaves to break free from the racist institutions of the US and to relocate to the island nation of Haiti. While the idea never truly caught on, other abolitionist leaders like Henry Highland Garnett believed the plan to be sound Brown felt that an ideal society was both white and black, but couldn't see that happening at the time, especially not in the U.S. In 1861, after spending time in Canada trying his best to convince black Canadians to relocate to Haiti, Brown returned to Boston to continue his work with William Lloyd Garrison. While back in the U.S., Brown shifted his view on Lincoln and realigned his views and writings to support the war effort. Brown, at this time, pursued yet another career outside of writing and lecturing. In 1863, he trained to become a doctor and practiced medicine. Brown achieved his goal and became a practicing physician that same year. However, even after the Civil War had ended and he had turned to a life of medicine, he never ceased writing works to further advance America's black community. In his later life, He produced a handful of works that included The Rising Sun, which examined the achievements of African Americans up to the Jim Crow era, and The Negro in the American Rebellion, which detailed the role Black soldiers played in the Civil War. Brown spent the final parts of his life during the 1870s advocating for temperance and practicing medicine at his own office in Boston. He believed that temperance was an essential way for African Americans to improve their station and standard of life. On November 6, 1884, William Wells Brown, the great orator, writer, doctor, and abolitionist, passed away at the age of 70, leaving behind a legacy of anti-slavery thought and a willingness to challenge the supposed racist American ideals that tarnished the country's reputation in the 19th century just as much as it does today. Today's episode was researched and written by the museum's own Patrick Ryan and was produced by me, Anthony Greco. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back soon. The Buffalo History Museum podcast is sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by m Bank and from our donors, members, and friends.